The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at the intense fighting in the south around the occupied city of Kherson, the start of which some believe is the long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive. We also explore a fascinating aspect of Ukraine's fight back against Russian disinformation. Welcome to the world of NAFO, the fellows, and images of Shiba Inu dogs. Confused? Listen on. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 30th of August, day 188, and today I'm joined by The Telegraph's associate editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, and our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war zone. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been a very busy 24 hours. There are credible, multiple and credible reports that the long-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive is underway. I'm adding a note of caution there because there is there is always there should always be scepticism with first and early military reports. Um, but it does look like it, that there is a a broad offensive going on rather than just any kind of shaping operation that we spoke about last week. Um, so on Monday night in a video Monday last night, Alexei Arestovich, advisor to President Zelensky, said that Ukrainian forces had broken through. That's his quote: "Broken through Russia's defences." So here's my first alarm bell: broken through. I mean, it implies a kind of crust beyond which there's there's a green open fields you can motor across. Um, doesn't always work like that. Don't think it works like that here. It's certainly in, in British military. Doctrine, all-round defence, and depth are our principles of defence. So I, I, I question whether or not there is any breaking through here. I would have thought there'd be a very large um, structure of Russian defences put in place. Um, but just, just take that with a pinch of salt. There has been shelling on the uh, on the uh, the bridges over the Dnipro River, the Antonovsky Bridge, and um, uh, that was hit last night. We think the hydroelectric dam and bridge further to the east has also been hit. The hastily constructed pontoon bridges that Russia has put in place over the last few weeks across the river have also been hit. Um, Russia, for its part, um, I mean, I I mentioned this just to to mark it and move on. Yesterday, Sunday, Russia said there's no offensive and today they're saying the offensive has stalled. So, you know, you 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 simply can't have it both ways. My point is... Don't don't go to Russia state media for for any news on this. It's it's going to be it's going to be um, false. Otherwise, Ukraine has been very quiet. Now, I'm, I mark that because in recent weeks there's been a lot of talk about an offensive in the south. I mean, this has partly been, I think, a clever strategy to draw attention away from the Donbass, um, as HIMARS and the other multiple launch rocket systems have depleted long-range artillery, Russian artillery in that area. The, the attacks have dwindled to an absolute trickle but Russia have also been forced to make this massive left hook this huge push to the south to push other forces uh, to the Kurzon area in anticipation of this assault so I think it was quite clever by Ukraine to message that um, Russian forces on the move are are not not able to particularly fight from the line of march as we've as we've seen however now that another suggestion another another 
thing to suggest that this is this is actually a proper offensive is the fact Ukraine have gone very quiet on their strategic comms. President Zelensky says that no one no one sensible would would actually be talking about it right now. So I think their um, their reluctance to to engage in this on the narrative is is quite telling. It looks as if there are a, a broadly four axes of advance from from Ukraine's lines. Firstly, a thrust towards Kurzon city around the coastline and uh, and on the main highway, the, 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 the direct main highway from the sort of Mikolaev area. That's about 50 k's. Then it looks like there's a push a little bit further to the east down both banks, the east and the west bank of the Inulitz River. And then finally, another another push further to the east of that, which would be on the, the sort of extreme um, right flank of the Russian forces. And that's in the area of of Zaporizhia, not not as close as Zaporizhia and not near the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, which is not directly in the town itself. But it's, it's over to the over to the east. Um, and I'll just I'll just finish for this moment with the the latest UK defence intelligence assessment, which is saying that the Russian Southern Military District's 49th Combined Arms Army seems to have been augmented with the Eastern Military District's 35th 35th Combined Arms Army, and UK defence intelligence is saying, "quote Cohesion of this untested structure will likely be a key factor in the sustainability of Russia's defensive defences in the south." Unquote. And I I mention that because. I mean, just putting military units together and expecting them to crack on and, and rush forwards to glory—it just doesn't work like that. So, if they having to, if Russia is having to put two very large structures like combined arms army—I mean, the clues in the in the title—is is, this is a big force. If they have putting two together from different military districts of Russia, um, it it speaks of um, what they're able to put in the field, but also it, that does not augur well. You should, I, I would be very surprised if a structure of that size is suddenly able to just marry up and, and get on with something, especially as, as complex as, um, as a defence against a, a counter-offensive. I'll just take a little pause there, let Joe come in and, and we maybe come back later. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Joe, Joe and Francis, let's go to Joe first. Joe, you've been writing about this, uh, this assault since it started. Um, what would you like to add to Dom's thoughts? So that's, um, Dom's made uh, quite an interesting point, and I think the first point is we should kind of err on the side of caution when we're looking at about what is going to happen, what could happen. So ultimately, the Ukrainian goal you'd have to think is to capture Kherson, the city. It was first; it was the first kind of major city captured by Russian forces in early or late February, sorry. Um, and it's the only regional capital in Ukraine that's still kind of under Russian occupation. And so what's been quite interesting with this this long-awaited kind of counter-offensive, if it has started, has been kind of billed and spoken about amongst Ukrainian officials, politicians and the like for now two months. If we know it's coming, so do the Russians. And they've, they've actually, so about this time last month, they had uh, 13 tactical battalion groups in and around Kherson. And now that, uh, according to Roshan Consultant, Consulting, uh, who are kind of an independent military kind of analysts, uh, is now kind of over double, and they estimate around 30 BTGs are kind of in the Kherson area. So it's, it's not a kind of a, a going to be an easy kind of walk through uh, for Ukrainian forces. So BTGs are normally made up of around 800 soldiers plus hardware. There are kind of some intelligence briefings that suggest that they might, some of the BTGs moved over, might be kind of unmanned. They might be lower manpower. They're made up and hobbled together, as Don was saying of kind of the remnants of old units 
that have been kind of defeated across various kind of stages of the war in Ukraine. Um, so that's kind of the, the hint of warning. But there was some kind of interesting and kind of fun stories that we kind of heard as initial kind of reports came out and people started kind of confirming whether it be the head, uh, the spokeswoman for the Southern Operational Command, which is kind of that unit of the Ukrainian army or just kind of telegram chatter. And so one of the interesting ones, apparently when there was first reports of the lines being broken, then Ukraine forced the 109th Regiment of the so-called People's uh, Republic of Donetsk uh, to retreat from their position. And then um, that was uh, apparently led with report or followed with reports that a group of Russian paratroopers that were sent to support them were also kind of forced away and they fled the battlefield. And it was, again, they, they, they were followed by videos of kind of hastily abandoned ammunition that um, kind of local Ukrainian news channels claimed to be kind of from abandoned Russian positions. But obviously we've got to take oh, me. that with a, a pinch of salt because we cannot confirm it ourselves. Um, and then other things we we, we, we hear, heard that Ukraine had used tanks, they had used... Uh, aircraft, mainly helicopters, as well as kind of the high bars and other multi-launch rocket systems to kind of make the initial kind of breakthrough that they that have been claimed. So, um, and I think it might might be one for Dom to address is the actual importance of Ukraine being able to use tanks on the ground. Some high bars are great if you want to kind of disrupt uh, supply lines and enemy bases behind, far behind kind of the front line, but. If you're actually going to have to capture territory and do it quickly, you're going to need kind of a, a big presence of kind of armoured vehicles and tanks. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Francis, I know you've got quite a few thoughts on this. Do you want to come in quickly before uh, Dom talks about the, the, the sort of the so what? what? What does this actually mean? I would first start by echoing what Dom and Joe have said about urging caution on this. But nonetheless, I think it's important to talk about this as a hugely symbolic moment in the war. I mean, this is a country that was on its knees a few months ago. And now it is capable of launching, so we understand, a counteroffensive against one of the world's largest land armies. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. We spoke at length last week about whether Ukraine had the capacity to do this and whether they may well have missed, missed their opportunity because they didn't feel that they had the, the weaponry to do so. And that may well still be true. Indeed, one point of concern here, of course, is that this they may have been very sensitive to one argument that's been put forward, that, that it would be very dangerous for Ukraine to enter winter without seeking to launch some kind of ta- counterattack and thereby showing Europe and America that they are here for the long haul and are committed. And there's, of course, a danger that, that, that they have sought to do so without being fully prepared and as a consequence, um, that this may well perhaps not be the great counterattack, the great breakthrough that that has been um, advertised. Nonetheless, the opening signs are, are very promising for the reasons that Joe and Dom have just been talking about. I was actually in the office yesterday uh, at the Telegraph, and uh, we when we first started getting the reports coming in. And you could already get the sense then and over the hours that followed that those who've been following this war very closely, whether it be military analysts, those in Ukraine, um, senior political figures were getting very, very excited by what was going on. We knew that this was something quite extraordinary and thus it has it has proved 
Um, as I say, though, we don't yet know what Ukraine is capable of. Um, and it, 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 we should, as I say, as a consequence of that, not perhaps expect sort of the liberation of, of, of Kurzon um, imminently. This is more likely to be a, a, a long term campaign as opposed to a short one. Um, but there are also, as I say, a, a risk in terms of how this is perhaps being advertised somewhat, which is that you've already got commentators saying that, that, that now it would be a failure if, uh, if Kyrgyzstan were not recaptured by the Ukrainian forces. And the question I would ask is, can Ukraine really afford that um, entering winter, a, a not being able to take um, the, the, this city back, which now is clearly the, the target of, of, their, of their campaign? Thus far in the war, Ukraine, I would argue, has, has largely under-promised its capabilities, but has more than over-delivered. There's some sense that on this one, they are really trying to say that they are, they are launching a major, major counteroffensive. And whilst there is a huge morale boost in that, and I say huge symbolic value in that, there is also a danger that if you over-promise and under-deliver, that that will also play against you. But as I say, there's no evidence for that yet. But that, those are some of the complex problems that we're going to have to try and unravel together over the coming days. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Dom, do you want to come in at all? Yeah, just briefly, let's, let's have a look at the so what's here. I mean, what, what, does, what does it mean? Um, why now, basically? I mean, Francis mentioned that, that there is great need for Ukraine to have a significant victory to show the world before the winter crisis hits us or before winter hits and, and the winter fuel crisis hits certainly us in Europe and, and probably elsewhere as well. But Ukraine need to be able to show that they can win this thing to keep the international sport going through the long, dark months. I think that's that's widely considered um, accurate. But so what have they been doing? There's been a been a steady Ukrainian build up of forces. There's a great piece in, in today's paper from Joe talking about how um, Ukraine have been building dummy high Mars, for example, out of out of wood and cardboard. I mean, the classic deception technique of, of having blow up tanks and what have you that I used to play around with, um, and that are still in service. And that Russia has has um, has gone after these with some very high end kit, um, Iskander missiles and what have you, you know, utilizing limited uh, precision guided munitions. It's got. We've seen the build up with uh, Ukraine MLRS and HIMARS and so on and so forth. We've um, we've seen them drop the bridges in the Kurzon area and they are attacking on a broad front. Now, that takes a hell of a lot of effort to have a, a, a broad and deep offensive. You need a deep offensive, otherwise there's no point in starting it, really, unless it's a little raiding probe, but that would come into the shaping operation. If it's part of a counter-offensive, then you need to have depth to your to your attack otherwise you're not you're not taking it seriously basically so a broad attack front is is helpful um it also keeps the russians off guard because they don't know they don't know where to uh where where to put their reserves which is all all important um and it allows ukraine to reinforce success so if they have a if they push through in one area they can they can sort of um give up the advance in another area to, to back that, to, to reinforce the success and keep going keep going there. So a broad front makes sense, and it's it's evident, we think, from what little we've seen so far, that they've spent the last few months building up the um, the requisite forces there. And when I want to say requisite forces, of course, this is not 
this is not just one part of the of the orchestra. You know, to be able to do this, you need tanks and infantry working together under an air defence umbrella with uh, artillery on call. You need logistics support. You need those logistic lines to be robust and to have have other lines in place that can uh, that can quickly step in if something's knocked out. You need medical support up there. You need command headquarters. You need alternate command headquarters. You need step up headquarters to, when you're on the move. So this is a huge undertaking, an offensive, and. I think that that suggests that if this if this is the big the big push for now, that's probably it for the year because uh, we we think Ukraine like Russia have been very severely depleted in the war so far. Now on Russia on the Russian side, we know their forces have been degraded. They've, we've seen a number of ammo dumps, command and control facilities, airfields in Crimea going up in um, you know the, the wee small hours at high miles o'clock. Their command seems to be in chaos. There's been a number of generals who have been sacked, moved about. That's quite that's quite normal in war, actually. If things aren't working, you replace people. But not normal to replace so many so quickly. That speaks of either people not being very good at their job or, or a political imperative run out of control. So not giving people time to... I mean, I know this is... This is men and women we're talking about but you know to make mistakes and mistakes will will happen and are dare i say necessary to happen for for great commanders to 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 become great um but the command seems to be in chaos we'll talk about sergey shoigu in a minute the the russian defense minister who seems to be sidelined and out of favor at the moment putin seems to be bypassing him and talking directly to his operational commanders so that's not good at a very senior strategic level Russia is off balance, as I've said, with the with the bridges that have been dropped, capturing, we think, some thousands north and west of the Dnipro River. The move to the south that I mentioned earlier on has has uh, blobbed them out and they are sort of strung out between the Donbass and the Kherson region. So Russia's off balance. And so, so all, it makes sense to do for Ukraine to launch an attack now. Um, however, we should bear in mind that this is this is not an end let's let's take from let's assume for a moment let's take it as read that ukraine pushes as far as the dnipro river takes back kherson city and all the land down to uh, down to the river that will be an operational victory not a strategic victory that will be operational as in it will affect the battlefield could be a turning point on the battlefield it's not going to be a turning point in the overall war um, what then happens from russia Putin has yet to declare war. He's he's talked about. We heard last week how they were going to mobilise another hundred thirty-seven thousand soldiers. It's like, yeah, okay. It, it, I mean, that would take take years to to raise, equip, train, and embed that kind of number into your into your system. So so that's not going to happen for a while. So does he declare does he declare war in terms in able to to use um, all the levers at his at his disposal. There has been talk of what would a military defeat on this scale look like to Russia, and would that be a cause to use tactical nuclear weapons? I don't think so, because I think that that is still a leap, even for some of the erratic decisions that we've seen from Putin and the senior Russian military leadership. I think it is still a bit of a leap to do that, to reach for tactical nuclear weapons, although that is in their doctrine. Um, if if military defeat is expected, I think it's a bit of a leap without war having been declared. Um, but what else can they do? Um, there could be an accident at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. We were looking at that last week. Russia just today has been accusing Ukraine of more shelling over the weekend. There are marks uh, you can see in today's in today's Telegraph and on online. Um, we've got images from Maxar Technology showing that there are 
Um, there are marks on buildings near the reactors in Zaporizhia, which seem to be the result of shelling. Of course, Russia is saying this is Ukraine. Ukraine is saying it's not. Is this a false flag? We don't, we don't know. Um, but that could be a precursor to some horrific staged event there in, in, um, uh, in response to this assault. And, of course, don't forget that last week's or, or during last week, the UK Defence Intelligence Assessment did show, vehicle, uh, did show images of tanks and other military vehicles, Russian tanks and vehicles, within 60 metres of reactor number five at Zaporizhia. So some kind of um, disproportionate response, disproportionate both in scale and in the in the type of response, not a direct battlefield response um, from Russia, could be um, on the cards here. I don't think they will go for tactical nuclear weapons, but Zaporizhia is looking very vulnerable. And I, I'm pretty nervous at the moment because the command at strategic and operational levels in the Russian military and defence framework seem to be in chaos. And we don't know quite who... Um, what levers there are between Putin and uh, and ground level, but we just yeah just need to think of, of of the so what's and to echo Francis's point, what would what would victory look like in this battle alone, just in this bit alone? What would victory look like for Ukraine? Or conversely, if they do not, let's say they take all the ground, all the countryside, but do not take Kurzon city, would that be deemed good enough? Um, a, a question for us to discuss over the next few weeks. Thanks very much, Dom. Can I just pick out two stories there to talk slightly more about? Um, You've both flagged them. One is on these these dummy HIMARS. Uh, Joe, you wrote the story for The Telegraph on this. Would you be able to tell us a a little bit more about what the Ukrainians did and why it was so effective? And then, as Dom, as you mentioned, I think we'd better talk about Sergei Shogu and his estrangement from Putin and what that might mean. But first, on the dummy HIMARS, uh, Joe Barnes. Sure. So there's these stories emerged um, out of Ukraine about how the Ukrainian army or government authorities have commissioned the construction of wooden kind of contraptions that look like the US-provided HIMAR rocket systems, which have been used to kind of devastating effect uh, by the Ukrainian forces, whether it be knocking out kind of Russian supply lines, uh, bridges, uh, command and control posts, and ammunition dumps that we've seen kind of in the last two months. And so a um, Ukrainian official has told the Washington Post newspaper that decoy versions of these HIMARS that have been dotted around kind of Ukrainian countryside waiting to be found have drawn fire from at least 10 caliber cruise missiles fired from Moscow's kind of naval fleet in the Black Sea. They are one of Moscow's kind of precision weapons, uh, stockpiles that Western kind of officials have been warning, have been running low since April. Uh, so losing these missiles is kind of a real blow for the Russian armed forces because uh, they just don't have that many of them, apparently. And so basically what these wooden kind of dummy HIMARS are doing is they're being dotted around the countryside and then the Russian artillery drones are sent up into the sky to basically look for Ukrainian targets. And they basically their eyes light up because they cannot distinguish between whether it being a real HIMAR or a dummy kind of mock-up wooden version of the weapon. So they they radio back into kind of headquarters and go, look, we've got one, we've got one in our sights, let's do it. And they pull the trigger, send up a precision missile, and they then celebrate that they've destroyed this weapon. And say Washington has shipped 16 high miles to Ukraine so far. Um, 
and many people laugh that you, uh, Russia has claimed to have destroyed more HIMARS than has been sent by Washington. So that basically alludes to the fact that they've been knocking out these dummy versions pretty consistently since they kind of emerged on the battlefield. But I think the other really interesting thing to consider is the Russians are actually quite terrified of the HIMAR. They've been constantly forced to kind of rejig their supply lines and where their ammunition dumps are, constantly moving them kind of further and further out of range of the high miles, which can strike to about, uh, I think uh, people have said they can land on a penny on a table about 50 miles away. So they, they, they are kind of a real precision kit. So by using these decoys and placing them around, you can um, you can slowly start spooking the, the Russians into moving their kind of artillery ammo dumps further out of range, which makes it harder for them to kind of resupply their front lines. And, and it's just a fascinating kind of version of kind of hybrid war that we've we've seen during this conflict. And I know Dom mentioned there's actually there's kind of historical precedent to it. Even so I did a bit more research and kind of flicking through the archives of what we've seen so far in Ukraine. And we've seen set scarecrow soldiers that were dressed up in helmets, army uniforms, body armors. They were equipped with NLAW anti-tank rockets, Stinger anti-aircraft launchers. And they were just dotted around the countryside in the early day of the conflict, hoping to basically kind of either cause a retreat or kind of almost let the Russians uncover their position while firing on them. Um, and then the other one that we've seen is cars being dis- have been disguised as kind of armoured vehicles by both sides in an attempt to con the opposition forces. But I think the wooden high Mars is the kind of the most effective version we've seen in causing or forcing the Russians to spend kind of limited and costly ammunition in the caliber rockets and other precision missiles they might have. So it's, it's been a kind of a real boost and I'm, I'm sure it's probably helped Ukraine in preparing the shaping exercise and the lines ahead of this counteroffensive in the South. It feels very um, pre-D-Day, doesn't it? Lots of uh, armies of, of wooden tanks and, and wood, wooden systems. That, that well, It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, uh, Joe, for that. Francis, would you like to come in on that at all? Well, the only thing I would just mention, you mentioned World War Two, is there's been a lot of speculation that the attack on Curzon may echo in some ways the uh, Battle of Normandy and specifically the, the Battle of the Falaise Gap in 1944, which was the defi- decisive engagement of the Normandy campaign when uh, the Allies tried to encircle and entrap the German soldiers who were fighting around the town of Falaise. And whilst many Germans managed to escape uh, there were still, I think, around 50,000 who were trapped in the pocket before it closed. And obviously that came as a huge consequence when they were forced to surrender. And as I say, there are some who are speculating that the Ukrainians are seeking to cut off with their attacks on the bridges and also through their now military advance, the the Russian escape route and try and cut those off who are currently stationed in Kurzon. But as I say, I think we should be very hesitant to go too far in our analogies, not least because uh, in 1944, uh, the Allies had air superiority. And I think it's fair to say that whilst Ukraine has a a far more effective air force than we predicted, they do not have superiority. And that had a huge influence on the eventual outcome and success of the Falaise Gap campaign. Um, But I wanted to specifically talk a little bit about Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister um, of the the Russian state. Now, as uh, Dom alluded to, uh, 
um, Putin has reportedly ordered generals to actually bypass him, um, uh, Mr. Shoigu, um, because he's being blamed for the stalled invasion. The reason I wanted to focus on this is uh, twofold, really. Of course, on the first hand, it's very significant at, at this very moment as the counterattack has been launched. It's not a good look for Russia when you command, you, when you effectively sideline or maybe, who knows, effectively fire the person who's been in command of the campaign. It would speak to things not going in the direction that, that you've wanted them to. Um, but the other reason I wanted to mention it is we predicted this on the podcast many, many months ago. We spoke about the problem with Shoigu is that he is a classic example of a commander who has ridden, ridden the, risen the ranks of the, uh, of the Russian state because he has effectively played the political game. He said the right things. He's met, shaken hands with the right people. And, and his own actual capabilities as a, uh, as a defence minister have always and long been questioned. And, th- and those who have perhaps been more effective, more honest um, in their appraisals of the Russian capability within Russia have been sidelined because of Shoigu basically saying the right things and saying that he can do this. He reminds me very much of a Hermann Goering type character, um, somebody who says, oh, yes, no problem. We can do that. No problem at all. And then actually when push comes to shoves, they, have, they don't really know what they're talking about in terms of the capabilities of the armed forces. Most famously, of course, Hermann Goering did this um, in the Battle of Stalingrad. He promised that he would be able to keep uh, the Sixth Army resupplied um, after that campaign went sour. And and Hitler, as a consequence, uh, made several strategic calculations, which um, ultimately led to the defeat of the Sixth Army. Um, And that was largely the responsibility, the fact that he believed that the the Sixth Army could be resupplied um, uh, by the Luftwaffe, which was not the case, thanks to effectively the the lies or at least the delusions of of Hermann Goering. So I wanted to just... to, to draw in on Sergei Shoigu because of this um, important significance in, in terms of the war generally. But of course, on the other hand, I think we shouldn't necessarily see this as only as a, as a, as a sort of positive when framed in that way, because the, the blunt truth is, is there are many instances in wars that are not going a side's way where um, those who have been making key strategic decisions have been replaced and are by more effective commanders who have changed strategy and have thereby been successful. The one that leaps out at me is, for the benefit of our American listeners, is, of course, the American Civil War. Um, the the uh, commander of the Union forces, uh, General McClellan, was in many ways seen as a successful builder of, arm, of, of armies, but not a very successful man once he had them in, under his uh, uh, command on the battlefield. And after successive defeats, or at least not making decisive operational successes, most famously at the Battle of Antietam in 1863, um, uh, Lincoln relieved him of command and put other generals in command of the Union side, um, perhaps most notoriously um, Ulysses S. Grant, who went on to become president himself. Uh, and that totally shifted the um, trajectory of the war from the Union side. What were once um, Pyrrhic victories or even defeats against the Confederacy eventually became uh, a, a success after success after success. And, uh, and so whilst in many ways, as I say, I think Shoigu's sidelining is significant and speaks to things going wrong in the Russian military space, 
there is another side to this, which is what if another person takes over in overall command who is actually more effective? What could that mean for the trajectory of the war? We don't know, but again, another issue for us to untangle in the weeks ahead. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Dom and Joe, do you have anything more to add on uh, the the counteroffensive in the South? Well, just one final point there to, to follow on from Francis. Of course, the other person we've seen very little of recently is um, Gerasimov, Valery Gerasimov, the head of Russia's armed forces. We've heard almost nothing of him recently. He went into the Donbass poof, a couple of months ago now and, and was, uh, we are led to believe from very credible sources, injured in, a, in an artillery strike there. I believe a bodyguard was killed in that. Um, but we've heard almost nothing of him. And he was apparently the, the architect of the, you know, the Gerasimov doctrine, this, this thing we should all quake in our boots reading. This was uh, um, Russia's amazing ability to wield all the levers of national power um, to, uh, to, to, to win uh, strategically. So uh, interesting that, that Shoigu and Gerasimov seem to be silenced, quiet, pushed to one side. Um, we don't know what would come, what would happen next. But, but of course, so far in this war, we've seen commanders replaced and and then replaced themselves. Um, so it, it doesn't speak well. I mean, look at think about Dvornikov. Gerasimov kind of went into the country and he and he pulled, said all the all the different fronts were going to come together under General Dvornikov, and then within weeks he was sacked. So yes, we should be very wary of what might come next. Um, we should also be very wary of of a of a vacuum between between sort of Putin and the operational commanders, that level of that military strategic, military political interface, if that is absent, then all sorts of chaos can run riot in there. And so we should be very wary of celebrating any any perceived chaos in the Russian structures. Um, very, very early in this in this counteroffensive with, with huge risks attended from all sides. So, yeah, take the news as it, as it comes and mark it um, that there does seem to be some kind of chaos at, at the Russia's in Russia's leadership, um, but yeah, we should be very wary of what that might that might um, presage. Thanks very much, Dom. Uh, Joe, anything from you? And then I think we've got a few more updates on the diplomatic front before we talk about the fellas. And don't worry, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the one, the one thing that probably it probably brings Dom in it would be how a, a, is a Ukraine as they kind of make this offensive going to be able to shift their own tactical kind of approach to the war. So what we've seen is in recent weeks and kind of US and European officials have conceded this that they've that Ukraine have been given a kind of a blueprint that was drawn up by the US special kind of US special operations team on how to fight Russia uh, and its vastly kind of superior and larger army which was put together in the wake of Russia's war with Georgia. And Ukraine and it's all about kind of guerrilla and resistance fighting kind of using underhand not underhand tactics because obviously you're being invaded but using kind of tactics of deceit and deception and kind of taking out, using partisans, like creating partisan forces and stuff. But uh, now it moves to a slightly more conventional ground war in the South. Are we going to actually be able to see a, a whether Ukraine can actually kind of move to this tactical approach and can they, can they actually prove effective um, or as effective as they have been with their resistance fighting kind of defensive approach that they've used so effectively in the last few months. Don, would you like to come back on that? Well, they've got two big things I would suggest. Firstly, moving from the defence to the offence is, is very, very tricky. Two completely different um, modes of, of warfare. Um, and secondly, of course, over the last few months, Ukraine, with huge Western help, has been transitioning from a former Soviet style of of building and equipping a, and training a, a force to, to NATO 
standard. And that's that goes everything from the calibre of weapons being fired to the equipment that's being supplied, the training on it and so on and so forth. So, I mean, they this will be one for the historians um, because the, I, I can't think of, of an army that has transitioned so far so quickly and then been thrown into such a fight uh, in the kind of time scale that, that Ukraine has. So this will be, this is the first real test. Since the weapon, the Western weapons have been flowing in, it's pushed back the, the Russian artillery and that has led to the stalled advance in the Donbass, largely led to the stalled advance in the Donbass and, and shaped the, this battle to come. But in terms of combined arms manoeuvre, as I said earlier on, the whole orchestra playing, the tanks and the infantry and the engineers and the and the and the uh, signals, intelligence, medics, logistics, the whole lot, you know, all all working together. This is the first really big test, I think, for for Ukraine, and to do it, um, having taken a pounding for six months and transitioning to new weapon systems and and ways of working, I think is extraordinary. Um, so. There's, there's huge risks here, and um, and yeah, I think I think if, if it is successful, and you know, jury's out on what success will look like, but uh, yeah, I think this is very definitely one for for the historians about how how a military can transform in contact, and by in contact, I mean fighting the other side. If you're in, you're in a fist fight, and you are um, you're trying to do your shoelaces up with one hand um, and, and keep the other the other fellow away with with the other i mean it's extraordinarily difficult to, to transition in contact is it's very very difficult the, the british military um with commonwealth allies in the first world war managed it in through sort of 1917 and by 1918 was just a juggernaut that then rolled east um but it, it takes a long a long time to do it to change your structures and uh, and equipments and and everything whilst in contact with the enemy is a, is a colossal undertaking to do that on new equipment and new doctrine is is something else entirely so we shouldn't underestimate exactly how hard this is. Not least, least of which is the the um, the ratios you need, the numbers you need if you're if you're defending, uh, vice if you're attacking. So yeah, a, a massive undertaking here um, for Ukraine. Dom Nichols, you're part of the fellows. You're part of NAFO now. Um, to those listening who never heard of of that, no idea what I'm saying. Um, can you explain briefly because it's a new a new front in the information war. We've they've been around NAFO. have been around now for a few months or even longer. It's been picked up a few times um, by international media. I think Vice did a very interesting thing on it. Uh, the Yorkshire Post um, uh, did something the, the other day. Uh, but you are now you are now a fella. What does that involve and who are they? Yeah, we've mentioned this briefly. Um, a few weeks ago, I think. So this is a, a fascinating aspect of the information war that's going on here. Um, and I, I've got a nod to Oz Kataji, who's who's listening in. And Oz, I do apologise if I've mispronounced your name. I'm so sorry. But Oz put out a great thread on, on Twitter a couple of days ago. You should all, should all go and read it about about the fellas and NAFO. So NAFO, what is it? It's, it's the North Atlantic Fellas Organization. That doesn't really answer it. But basically, this was a this is a grassroots counter disinformation campaign um, challenging Russian nonsense. So Russia, for years, has been held up as as a master of the dark arts of, of misinformation and, um, and manipulating the the media landscape, if you like, the information. Uh, flank of any of any confrontation and and what's been shown is that meeting this meeting russian absurdity with facts fact checking and truth just isn't working it doesn't work because they just they just deflect and move on to something else and and you, you never land a blow it's like fighting fighting with smoke so what the 
what NAFO is, it was started, I mean, well, t- to be perfectly honest, I'm not entirely sure how it started, <laughs> um, where it started, but, but NAFO is, is, a, is, a, is an international group with, we think, many thousands of people in it who have just decided to meet nonsense with nonsense. So they challenge Russian disinformation online with just absurdities to tie them up in knots. And it's effectively a great big raspberry to every Russian piece of disinformation that's put out there. And it it's... I don't know how to explain this, but to, to be a fella, you can um, buy stuff off the uh, St. Javelin website, with, you know, which is all good merch of, of uh, Ukrainian... The, the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, good, good merch there. I've got a mug and a T-shirt on the way. Um, or you can donate to the Georgian Legion. And then you can apply with a... With a with proof of your donation or your or your purchase, you can then apply to the fellows and say, can I have a fellow of my own? And you then describe what you'd like your little fellow to look like. Now, fellows are based around Shiba Inu dogs, the Japanese hunting dogs. Stick with me at the back. I know it's getting a bit confusing. I'm massively confused myself, but that's that's the delightful nonsense of all this. Okay, So the, the fellows are, the, uh, are, are just little cartoon dogs dressed up as you, the, the fellow, wishes it to be. Um, and you can then... Do, do whatever you like. And the, the idea is that you, you tie up Russian disinformation channels in, in knots. And firstly, I mean, just just for the sheer fun of it, because they might be they might think they're good at misinformation. But actually what they're not very good at is arguing and, and trying to get into a debate with a with a cartoon dog. It's just worth the worth the entry price alone. Um, but what it does, it keeps us on the agenda, keeps the war on the on the international agenda. It shows that there is nowhere to hide for Russia. It opens up the information flank, which is a bit wonkish, but I, I hope people understand what I mean by that. It allows people to feel empowered, ordinary people who who, who might not feel that they can do anything in this war. I mean, I'm lucky. We're lucky here. We've got a voice. We've got a microphone. We've got, uh, we've got an audience. We've got a, a, brand, a good brand behind us, so people listen to us. God knows why. But, you know, we've got a voice. Now, many people many people don't. And this is a way of, this is a way of, of allowing people to have a vote. Um, and allowing people to feel empowered and allowing people to feel to feel part of this. And I think that's important. The more people around the world feel part of turning around to Russia and saying, no, that's not acceptable. What you're doing is just not not the way we do it anymore in, in, in the world. And this is a very small way of doing it and a very small way of, of being part of a bigger of a bigger gang. Now, as Oz says, and I again urge you to go and have a look at his, at his thread, Russia is now having to devote time to. Um, belittling and countering this army of cartoon dogs. It's brilliant. And and they are wasting time with that instead of, as he puts it, atrocity revisionism, unquote, which I think is a great a great way of thinking about it. The more, the more time they spend arguing with cartoon dogs, then the, the less time they've got for, for p- putting out any other any other rubbish. So it is, um, it, or rather, it is not, as some people have suggested, glorifying war or making fun of extreme violence. Um, it's not that at all. It's I think it's a way of of the individual fighting back. Um, certainly, those without a voice or with a, with less of a voice than some some others of us who are lucky to have you know, platforms such as this. But what it does is it it, tell, it says to Russia, no, you, you, there's no hiding space. When you're going to come out, when you come out with nonsense, we will meet you with nonsense. We know it's nonsense, and you try and argue with us, which is absolutely brilliant. So I urge you all to to have a look at St. Javelin. Have a look at just just if you're on, on Twitter as you, as you are now, but um, uh, if you're listening to the podcast and you're able to get on Twitter, have a look at um, uh, hashtag NAFO 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 fellas. Just just have a look around, and you'll just see um, you'll see what's going on. Don't be scared when you look at it and goes, 
that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I feel a little bit scared by it. That's perfectly that's that's you're in the right place. So don't worry about it. Um, I I am now a fella. I'm waiting for my my personalised fella to come through. I wanted to do it now in in, ter- in time for this um, for this Twitter space and podcast, but the um, the the, the the fella forge is busy making lots of other little fellas at the moment. I'm told. I was offered one uh, to to borrow for today, but it was a it was a play on um, on uh, the Silence of the Lambs, and and uh, I, didn't, I didn't really like that. So I'll wait for my own fellas to come through before we have a look. But I urge you to go and have a look at it, and do please read Oz's Oz's thread because it, it I'm making light of it here. And that's the whole point. It's to meet absurdity with absurdity and counter Russia's disinformation campaign. And I urge everyone to have a look. Thanks, Dom. Just very quickly, what was the... Um, we were talking before this space, uh, and you mentioned a phrase uttered by some Russian official in response to sort of intense trolling by, by the fellas on Twitter. What, uh, what, what was it again? Because that's kind of one of the things that catapulted NAFO to, to internet stardom. Okay, so this is Mikhail Ulyanov, who's Russia's representative to... Uh, well, to Vienna, to the international organisations in, in Vienna. I'm not sure exactly what his, what his post title is, but he's basically a big Russian diplomat in Vienna. He got into, he got into a, a Twitter spat with a, with a fella, which, you know, as I say, the fella's just going to come back with nonsense. And he bit, Mikhail Ulyanov bit, and was just going round and round and round in circles, um, just increasingly talking, talking rubbish to each other. Um, and he ended up tweeting this, this fantastic line. He just tweeted, you pronounce this nonsense, not me. And it was just it, it just struck a chord. It's such an act of like, a desperate cry to to get out of this argument. But I don't want to get out of this argument because I want to win the argument. But I can't let go of you because you've got me locked in some ridiculous headhold with a Shiba Inu cartoon dog. And it was just such a brilliant, brilliantly stupid phrase. You pronounce this nonsense, not me. That it's now taken as one of the one of the sort of uh, bylines for uh, for the, for the fellas. So. It, Put on, put on any any kind of a, a photograph of of Putin saying something r- ridiculous, or their their guy in the UN, and just slap you pronounce this nonsense, not me, across it, and I don't know, it makes me smile, um, and that's what's coming on my T-shirt. Well, thank you very much, Tom. I think the thing it reminds me of is actually what you said earlier: how previously with Russian dis- disinformation, um, often organisations and journalists and fact checkers f- found that they were. It's almost like, as you said, fighting smoke. And now this is actually the other way around, that the, the Russian accounts and the, the Russian diplomats are fighting smoke when they fight the fellas. They, can't, they just can't do it, and they make themselves look ridiculous while doing it. Um, so thank you very much, Dom, for that. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch about that or ask any questions, please do, please do slide into our DMs. Uh, we will try and get some fellas on later this week to give us a bit more of an understanding from their side of what the kind of stuff that they are doing. Um, we're starting to run out of time, however. So Dom, Francis and Joe, uh, can I just ask for your final thoughts? What should our listeners be thinking of um, going into this week? Well, for me, it's got to be the, the, the emerging news out of, uh, out of Curzon. We have to be... We have to hold, the, hold our confidence in check here we are watching this almost lifetime with social media and it could be we could very easily think oh it's going great no it's going terribly with as each different tweet comes in have the confidence to hold the time down as my old drill instructor used to say just just this is going to take a long time there's a there's a lot to do here there's a huge amount of effort being expended and uh, keep an eye on the news we we are running our live blog so keep an eye on that we're here every day um, do question every piece of information you receive, including from us, because we, we get it wrong sometimes. Check uh, from other sources of information, but do stay up to date. Things seem to be moving quickly, and there's a lot at stake this week, I fear. I would just echo that. All attention has to be on this new offensive. 
something struck me from somebody who messaged me actually, which is that they were making the point that, of course, Ukraine has been underestimated throughout this war in many ways, and perhaps this is the first moment that many commentators begin to question that notion um, in terms of their military strength. But that got me thinking about, I've spoken a lot on the podcast about this danger inherent in, in the months ahead as winter hits, and that Europe, with the energy crisis being as severe as it is, may well begin to lose interest in the war. Perhaps there will be politicians who will be put under pressure to try and force some sort of ceasefire, etc., but it got me thinking, as I say, is to perhaps I and we underestimate Europeans, you know, that time and time again, I think, actually, if you look at the history of, of, of Europe, broadly speaking, people in democratic nations make the right call. And I think actually I've been very struck that the longer we've done this podcast, the more messages we've received from around the world and from within Europe, people are following this war very closely and they do know what is at stake here, perhaps more so even the political class is willing to acknowledge. And so if Ukraine has been underestimated, I don't think we should be guilty of underestimating the Europeans because it's very, very clear that their attention is very much on this. And I think they will be willing to make sacrifices for the greater good. Thank you very much, Francis and Dom. Joe Barnes, would you like the final words? Sure. Um, so obviously the kind of counter-offense from Kursal is the main thing, but let's uh, just kind of take a step back to Europe. So Kind of the EU is back and revving this week and its defence and foreign ministers are meeting in Prague as we speak. And so one thing that, or two things that we should see announced from the EU is a plan for the EU to start funding the training mission that's been undertaken by the UK, Canada, the Netherlands, Denmark and various other uh, kind of European and world Western nations to bring kind of Ukrainian soldiers up to speed. And the other one will be the EU will announce some sort of plan uh, for limiting Russian tourist visas. It won't be a full blanket ban. Yesterday, uh, France and Germany issued a kind of what they call a non-paper, which is just kind of almost a proposal. Their ideas on a bit of a bit of paper before this meeting, saying that we don't think a full blanket ban on Russian tourists is wise. But what we we will see is probably some sort of scheme that makes it harder, more expensive for Russians to get tourist visas in Europe um, while not closing kind of these humanitarian corridors for kind of anti-war Russians hoping to escape uh, the clutches of Vladimir Putin's government in Moscow and other areas. If I could just jump in very quickly, I'm sorry, folks, I know I said, said goodbye and we've all got other things to be getting on with, but I just, if I could just make an appeal, please, to anyone, particularly from uh, Australia, who, who listened to us regularly. Thank you for listening in. Um, I can't talk about my diary much, but if I were to be in front of your defence minister, Australia, also Australia's deputy prime minister in the next 24 hours... Um, what kind of questions would you like me to uh, uh, to raise? I, I just I just ask that off the top of my head. I'm not saying I am, but if I am, I'd appreciate any DMs. Thanks. Well, no idea where Dom's going to be tomorrow. Um, thank you very much, uh, Dom, Francis, and Joe, for your expertise and your thoughts. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free 
at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.